It's good to be here. I hope you are in a celebratory mood because that's what this Sunday is all about. It's about celebration. What's up with the palms? What's up with the palm trees? What's up with the palm branches? Why, why, did, why were the kids waving those this morning? And uh, why is the floor scattered with them? What's up with the palms and Palm Sunday? Well, before I go into that explanation, I just want to, to say to all of you uh, kids, thank you for participating. Do you have your palm leaves with you? Everybody got your palm leaves with you? Because I'm going to be asking you to wave them. If you didn't get one, those on the floor are brand new. So just, uh, just go grab a palm leaf because you're going to need them. All right. Palm Sunday has been celebrated in the Lord's Church for centuries all over the world because it commemorates two very important things. It essentially commemorates the first coming of the Lord Jesus and all that that means, all that he accomplished and how that affects us. And it also commemorates his second coming. It is in some sense a preparatory event. Uh, it prepares us for the coming of Jesus. So the palm branch, sort of like the olive branch, was a symbol of peace. And in the first century, that whole area was uh, referred to by the Greeks and the Romans as Phoenicia, which essentially comes from the Greek word where we get our English word phoenix. And so some people say that that refers to a certain kind of bird, but a lot of Bible scholars say there was another meaning to that word, and it meant land of the palms. And so that whole area was scattered with palm trees. And furthermore, the custom of the day was anytime some dignitary, some king or very important person came into town, it was customary for the people of the town to go out there and line the road with palm branches and they would wave the palm branches, they would cast them out into the road. Sometimes they would throw their garments out on the rope. It was a, a, a way of, as, as we would say today, rolling out the red carpet. And so that's what it was. It was a, a, a very special welcome. And in many cases, this was associated with a king coming into a city, and especially a king coming into the city after a great victory. And so there's a lot of symbolism going on here, a lot of cultural symbolism. And so the people of that day would have obviously picked up on that very naturally, but for us it seems a little strange because we don't ever line the streets and throw palm branches out into the street. 
that, that's just completely foreign to us. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a context to understand uh, why they were doing what they were doing. In essence, they're saying they're recognizing the lordship of Jesus. The Messiah has come into the city, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, the city where the temple is. And this is the messenger of God. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God who is coming into town. And so many of these people were aware of who he was. His reputation had spread all around the country because of his miracles, because of his teachings, all of his wonderful works. And so Everyone was celebrating that the Messiah was coming to town. Now, the Bible says in Matthew 20, verse 29, just before the passage we're studying, that they left Jericho to go to Jerusalem. So, it's important to understand a little bit about Jericho. Jericho was called the city of the palms. So that whole area was known by the Romans and Greeks as the land of the palms. Jericho was known as the city of the palms. And that's where this journey began, from Jericho. Now, if you had a map, Jericho is approximately seven miles from the northernmost part of the Dead Sea. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. And it is 17 miles east of Jerusalem. So when the Bible says they left Jericho and went up to Jerusalem, they literally went up. There was an ascent of 3,000 feet. And so they make this 17-mile journey from the city of the Palms, and they go to Jerusalem, and as they approach Jerusalem, as they get to the Mount of Olives, which is, is where they would have arrived and where the Bible uh, says uh, here, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. Bethphage means house of unripe figs. Just thought I'd throw that out there. But anyway, it's right there at the Mount of Olives. And so when they got to the base of the Mount of Olives, uh, Jesus gives them some instructions. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, these pictures here are modern pictures. The one on your left, that is the Mount of Olives. And, of course, in Jesus' day, you wouldn't have had that uh, big church building, and you wouldn't have had all those other buildings and houses on the mountain. But that is the Mount of Olives. On the other side of that mountain, uh, that, that would lie to the east, 
And that's where they came from. They came and they probably got uh, to the base of that mountain and, and probably went around that to get to this area. And you see where that church is? You see that wing that goes off to the left from that main part of that building? Everybody see that? If you follow that wing to the end of the wing, there's a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's filled with olive trees. And Gethsemane means essentially wine press. And there is a press, there's an ancient press right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that gives you some idea of where all of this is taking place. And so they get to the, the base of this, and from the picture to your right is looking into the city from the Mount of Olives. So if you're standing there, and, and I've, actually, I've actually stood there, gone in that church and been in all that, and if you stand on the front porch of that church and you look across, that's what you would see. Now, of course, what you see with that golden dome, that's the ancient temple site. But remember, that's not the temple. That is a Muslim mosque, unfortunately. But anyway, you can see there is a, a fairly large and deep ravine in between the Mount of Olives and the ancient city of Jerusalem. If you see about almost exactly halfway in that picture to your right, there's a wall made out of rock. Everybody see that wall? Well, that wall goes all around what's called the old city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. And so that would be the wall into Jerusalem. And so Jesus would have gone down into the ravine and he would have ascended up and gone through one of the gates in that wall. And so that's, that's where all of this takes place. Now it's interesting to point out that Jesus has just predicted his impending death. Remember, we're in the first 11 verses of chapter 21, but if you back up a little bit and, and read uh, some other things, you'll, you'll find that Jesus predicts his death. Notice, for example, in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised the third day. Now, so it's important for us to understand this is called the triumphal entry, right? And in a very real sense, it was because the crowds are shouting and celebrating the arrival of Jesus. But yet we got to remember, things changed radically within a few days' time. And what Jesus knew was he was making a trip into the city in order to be executed. 
That's what Jesus knew. And so in one sense, there's a great celebration going on because of the arrival of the Messiah. But I wonder what Jesus was thinking in his own mind. Jesus, no doubt, showed appreciation for what was going on, as as we're going to see shortly. But at the same time, he understood the gravity of the situation. He understood where he was going and why he was going there. Expectations for a Messiah was very high, and that's why there was such a celebratory mood. Notice Luke's account in 19, verse 37 and 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's what they were shouting uh, based on Luke's account. Now, we read Psalm 118 earlier in the service, and it refers to everything that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 21. There were shouts of Hosanna, and as Daniel pointed out, save us. And some scholars say it meant save us now. Their cries for salvation because they have their hope and their faith in Jesus being the Messiah and their understanding, their expectation of the Messiah was that he would come and he would deliver them from Roman oppression. So that's why they're so excited. They're delighted. This is something that they've longed for. Their nation, their people has longed for generations upon generations. This is something that every child in Israel had been taught from the time they were old enough to learn anything. Everyone looked for the day, longed for the day that the prophets spoke of where God would send a deliverer. God would send a Moses-like Savior. Just like their ancient ancestors had been delivered from Egyptian bondage, that story of the Exodus, that's what they're thinking. That's what they're longing for. That's what they're hoping. They're going to have a deliverer. They're going to have a Savior. And he's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to be a mighty king, a mighty warrior, and they're going to take their land back. They're going to take everything back and run the oppressors out. Why wouldn't you be excited for that? Liberation, freedom. This is what they believe, and that's exactly what Jesus did on a whole different level. He did deliver them from oppression. He did save them. He did so many of the things that they were expecting. It's just he did it in a different way. He did it in a surprising, unexpected way, and in their case, unbelievable way. And so it's so fascinating to watch during this week how it begins and then the way things move and the way things change and the way it all results in Jesus' execution, 
his death. Which, by the way, we know in retrospect, it is through his death and through his subsequent resurrection that Jesus accomplished all of these wonderful things. Salvation for the world. Salvation from sin. Salvation from death. Deliverance from all of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. All the things that we struggle with in life. All of the problems that we have. Everything that goes wrong in life and all the things that cause us anxiety and worry. These are the things that we are delivered from in Christ. He has come to save us. So as he was drawing near at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now this is from Luke 19, again, verse 37, 38. I'm going to read this again, and I want you to pick up on a couple of things, okay? Now remember, they began to rejoice and praise God. Why? Well, first of all, with a loud voice. You notice we've already read a couple of verses that use the word shout. Did you catch that? The people were so excited that they shouted. Sometimes we shout at things that are very exciting, things that we, uh, we are so overcome and overwhelmed with emotion because of the magnitude of what has happened. When is the last time you shouted because you were so excited, you were so thrilled at what Jesus has done for you. Well, that's what I want us to do. This is decent. It's in order. It's scripted, choreographed, all those things. So don't worry about all that. All you kids with the palm leaves, stand up. If you got a palm leaf, stand up. Okay? If you want a palm leaf, like I said, there's some brand new ones right there. If you're an adult and you want a palm leaf to shake it, grab you one. Everybody stand up. Everybody. Everybody stand up. Get up, get up, get up, get up. All right. We're all going to shout. Hosanna three times, and then we're going to shout, Lord, save us three times, okay? Ready? Hosanna! 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 Lord, save us! Lord, save us! Lord, save us! One more. Blessed are you, Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed are you, Jesus, 
who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. Now, why would we shout? Well, I want us to take a couple of minutes in silent meditation, okay? I want you, if it helps you to close your eyes, if it helps you to sit there with your palms on your thighs, your palms facing upward in a receiving position, if it helps you to lift up your hands and look up, whatever works for you, okay? It's nobody's business what you're doing, the person next to you or in front of you or behind you. We're not worried about what anybody else is doing. If you want to get down on your knees and kneel down, if you want to put your face to the floor, whatever you want to do, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple of minutes of silent meditation. And what we're going to do is we're going to think very seriously about all that Jesus has saved us from. What has Jesus saved you from? You know, sometimes, and maybe now, we need to be saved from ourselves. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Sometimes we get in the way. Our foolish pride, our arrogance, our self-will, our plans, our schemes, our dreams, our wants. And maybe we need to call out to Jesus to save us from ourself. Save us from our ego. There are people in this room that have undergone powerful and extreme deliverance. There are people in this room who have been slaves to sin, in some cases for decades, for the majority of their life. And yet Jesus has saved them. There are people in this room that have been saved from drugs, from alcohol, from lust. There are people in this room that have been saved from infidelity, people that have been saved from lying and deceit. There's all kinds of things that Jesus has saved us from. What, what would he have to do? What else could he do? That would bring joy to your heart and cause you to celebrate 
and shout with joy. What else could he do? There are many stories. We've heard testimonies from people like Charles Edwards, Charles McConnell. We've heard testimonies recently at CR. We heard Sherry give her testimony. We've heard Maria, Maritza. In some of your small groups, you've heard a lot of testimonies, a lot of stories of what God has done. We have no reason not to shout for joy. God has been so good to us all, and we should praise him because of what he has done. We should be filled with great joy. But Jesus... Rides in on a donkey. What? Kings would usually get their most valued stallion to ride into town on. Dignitaries today come in with a cavalcade of limousines. That's what dignitaries do. It's what important people do. But Jesus rides in on a donkey, not a stallion. This does not look like a warrior. This does not look like a powerful conqueror. This does not look like someone who's going to offer any kind of serious challenge to Rome. Who is this guy? What is he doing? What is he about? Maybe, maybe you would have been drawn to the crowd and the shouts, and you're looking and trying to say, okay, who's here? Who's arrived? Might be a rock star. Might be uh, LeBron James. It might be somebody famous. I want to see him. I want to see him. And they get up there, and they, who's this guy? Just a common, ordinary-looking dude on a donkey? What's everybody yelling about? What's all the excitement about? Why? What's going on? And that's the way the Jews were. They just, they could not accept. You know, a, a Jew would have probably known the scriptures from Daniel that talks about the Messiah coming, riding on the clouds in great glory. And that's what they're expecting, you know. And all they see is this guy on a donkey. And they just could not make that work in their heads. And so many viewed him as an imposter. Many viewed him as a nut. This guy's lost his mind. He's crazy. Who is this guy? But you know, this was fulfilling prophecy. This fulfilled a prophecy way back in Genesis 49, verses 10 through 12. Way back on a blessing that Jacob gave to Judah. This fulfilled a prophecy 520 years earlier of Zechariah. 
And Zechariah prophesied this would be an anointed king who would be rejected, but he would also be a rejected king who would be crowned. How do you make sense of all of this? Well, we make sense of it. We know, we understand because we are in Christ. We know Jesus. We realize that this man, Jesus, though he was rejected, though he was scorned and mocked and murdered, an innocent man who was murdered, he was the very Son of God. And he was the sacrifice given to take away our sins so that we could live. We were dead in our sins. Now we are alive to God. We have gained victory over sin and death. We have gained the victory over hell and the grave. We are victorious in and through Jesus. And he is on his throne at the right hand of the Father. He is the conquering king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the greatest there ever was or will be. That's Jesus. And we are the recipients and get to participate in his kingdom. We who are sinners... We, who should have been rejected, we are accepted into his kingdom. It's amazing. It really is amazing. It's shocking that the God of heaven, the almighty God and creator of the universe, would know me and love me. That just blows my mind, the grace of God. So he rides in, and the Pharisees, the watchdogs for the nation, the pious, self-righteous, religious dignitaries, they come and check this out. What's going on here? What's the commotion? Why is everybody yelling? And they don't like what they see or hear. These shouts, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. What? No, no way, can't be, impossible. And they literally interrupt the procession and they tell Jesus, tell them to stop. Tell them to be quiet. And I love what Jesus said. Luke 19, verse 39 and 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <laughs> you can't stop this. They thought they could. They tried. They did their best. They killed him. 
They couldn't stop it. Christianity's all over the world. What they thought they were doing actually threw gas on the fire. They fell right into the plan of God. And so now Jesus is king of all the earth. He's Lord of all. Psalm 98, verses 4 through 9. Shout! There it is again. Do y'all realize how many times the Scripture tells people to shout? And yet the quietest places on earth are church buildings. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth, all the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's what the Bible says. Amen. The trees can clap their hands, but you can't. I don't know. But Psalm 118 that we read earlier, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Did you know what we call Palm Sunday, that day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, do you realize that Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, says that there were somewhere in the neighborhood, and this is just a range, between 150,000 to 250,000 lambs came into Jerusalem on that day? You know why? That's the day the Passover lambs were selected. That's the day the lambs came to town. You see, just outside of Jerusalem, there was a little town that you sing about every Christmas. Old little town of Bethlehem. Do you know why the birth of of Jesus was announced to shepherds in a field outside of Bethlehem. Do you understand this? The fields where all the lambs were literally cultivated and raised for sacrifice. The, the fields that were full of flocks and flocks and flocks of lambs and thousands of them came to town on Palm Sunday, 
and they were chosen. They had to pass inspection. The lambs had to be perfect, sinless, without blemish. And all these lambs were going to be offered. And historians say that blood flowed like a river from the altar. And you would think so with that many lambs being killed. So the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, which takes away the sins of the world, he was born in Bethlehem. Of course he was. That's where the lambs come from. And Jesus came into Jerusalem on this particular day. Of course he did, because that's when the lambs, the sacrificial lambs came into town. And this perfect, sinless Son of God came into town knowing that he would soon be killed. He would be sacrificed, the true Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of all the world. This mighty king, the greatest who ever was and ever will be, comes to town on a donkey. I want to close with this prayer from Thomas Merton. Lord, give me the humility in which alone is rest, and deliver me from pride, which is the heaviest of burdens. Possess my whole heart and soul with the simplicity of love. Occupy my whole life with the one thought and the one desire of love. That I may love not for the sake of merit, not for the sake of perfection, not for the sake of virtue, not for the sake of sanctity, but for you alone. Amen.